CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we are excited because today we got a chance to talk to the author of a new book, uh, the book is Secrets of the Rare Coin and Bullion Business from a Lifelong Trader. You're going to want to stick around to hear those insights. And it's from a guy who's uh, really the last two decades uh, had a remarkable imprint on the numismatic hobby and business, Mike Garofalo. So uh, stay tuned for that. We are as every week, thankful for CoinWorld Plus allowing us to be here and allowing you to be here with us. It's just um, it's a good time. We're uh, dialed up, ramped up, uh, talk about some, some fun aspects of numismatics. And uh, why wait? Let's dive right into it because uh, there's so much to talk about. I love that uh, every week we get to explore some facet of numismatic history. And I found it interesting in looking at this week in numismatic history that um, there were two pretty big events on the same day, but 20 years apart. Let's go to March 24th. What happened on March 24th, 1964? Do you have any idea, Chris? This is not the trivia question, of course. 1964. Well, the year 1964 makes me think of the elimination of silver from circulating coinage, though, of course, silver coins continue to be struck, dated 1964 into 1965 and 1966. So does it have anything to do with that? No, but it is a coin that would, would be struck in silver for a while. And that was... The oh, first... wait, 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 wait. Sorry, I think I got it. Um, was, it uh, the Kennedy ha- was the Kennedy half dollar introduced on this day? Yes, it was. Boom. Yes, it was. You know, that's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, you know, 1964 was the first year of the Kennedy half. Uh, A nation was mourning the assassinated president. You know, a lot of people kept those coins back because of that visceral connection to Kennedy. Then you had, you know, the uh, concomitant, uh, you know, the the whole saga of silver being removed from circulation and the development of the clad coinage that would, would follow suit. So that was a big deal. But what happened 20 years before that? I don't expect you to know this. I'm just going to tell you. Wait, um, was it the export license for the 1933 double eagle that went over to King Farouk? You are real close because it involves the ni- a 1933 gold $20 double eagle. But that was uh, this particular situation was the Secret Service confiscating one from a dealer dealer max berenstein oh yeah i read about that in um uh, that book illegal tender yeah that covers the 1933 double legal i knew i remember in you know march 1944 that's when the sort of uh, reclamation effort or the effort to kind of identify the extant 
1933 double eagles kind of kicked off. So I knew that there's a lot of the history of the 1933 double eagle dates to the beginning of that chapter of the history of the 1933 double eagle kind of dates to this, you know, that period in, in 1944. So very cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you you did a real good job. That was on the spot. You didn't know it was coming. Uh, and of course, you know, we've talked about the 33 double eagle so many times on this podcast, and it has such a storied and important place in the hobby. I found it really interesting that you had uh, something on the same day, uh, but 20 years apart. And so uh, that was why I highlighted that. Now, Every week we try to look at an issue of Coin World from the past, and we're looking at the March 21, 1979 issue, 1979, because I believe that was the year that Mike Garofalo got involved in the industry. And I really wasn't thrilled with some of the news coverage up front. I found an ad. It's all the way on page 39, but I, I loved, I love looking at these ads uh, because they they are object lessons in how the market has changed and you know how you gain collectors and serve collectors how that has all changed. Uh, this was a full page ad, uh, the last call for the complete set of silver jubilee, silver proof crowns. The complete set will be withdrawn from general sale in North America on May 1st, 1979, unless supplies are exhausted earlier. So. What was this? This was like a 10 coin program or something like that. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe. I don't know. Eight, eight Jubilee crowns. And they were uh, being sold for $25 each. They're all struck by the Royal Mint. And they celebrate the 1977 Silver Jubilee of the Queen. And it's, it's important to note or interesting to note because this year is the Platinum Jubilee. This is a 1979 issue, and the sales of this product and program were still ongoing, and it was being advertised in Coin World. It, that's just so sort of bizarre to how things are done today. You know, a lot of the the world mints and and the private issuers, there aren't the distribution arms and the media awareness on a lot of this stuff like there used to be. It's just really interesting. Like there was, there was a company in suburban Dayton, Ohio, uh, Paramount Numismatics, I believe it was Paramount. And um, they did a lot of distribution for world mints. And you look at their business model and the way they did things. And it's so different than today. So I love highlighting that. And I, I, I thought about, as I look at this, you know, I've, I've seen these coins. I have a few of them, I believe you can buy a lot of them for basically the melt value. They were available for $25, $25 in 1978, 79, what is that in today's dollars? That's got to be super expensive. Today, they're they're barely worth $25. That's the silver in them. So I just found that interesting. It's always fun to pick up on a different aspect. Here it is. This And, and to be fair, the, the designs on these this series are not really flattering and they're not, um, they, they really seem tangentially linked to uh, the queen, the the queen's on the obverse of the coins as she often is, but the designs are of 
various aspects related to uh, the places of issue, Gibraltar, Tristan de Cunha, St. Helena, Falkland Islands, Jersey, those kind of places. And it's um, Guernsey, I think. It's just really interesting to see how things are done. So that was what jumped out at me. Uh, I know you found a few things of interest on the letters page, right, Chris? I did. And also, it's funny you say that. I saw another article as I was digging through the issue. Um, I happened upon an article about the Texas Numismatic Association's 11th annual medal. This week, I'm writing up a, um, a very short piece about they're issuing another medal this year um, in their annual medal series. And so it was just funny. I'm like, oh, hey, TNA. So there's a little uh, connection to something I'm working on there. But on the letters page, you're absolutely right. I found two things. They deal with different things. They're sort of not thematically connected, but they just struck me as interesting. So I'll, uh, I'll share them with you. The first one is arguably the more evocative of the two, and it's entitled Lock It Up with an exclamation point. And it reads, quote, as a serious coin collector who has been at it for many years, the time has approached when it is clear to me that it is a very, it is very dangerous to have such a fine hobby. Those of us who have a collection are in danger every day, and we do not enjoy it, as we are forced to store our collection in a safe deposit box in a bank. Very seldom do we have a chance to look at what we have and enjoy our collections. I, like many other collectors, read in CoinWorld each week that many have been robbed and at times a life lost. Even if our collections are not in our homes, we are in danger of being harmed, as those attempting the robbery won't believe it when we tell them the collection is in the bank. In this area, we collectors are well-armed and will take the necessary steps to protect our personal property and lives. My entire collection is banked. This was written by Inglis P. Mangum of Walterboro, South Carolina. So this jumps out at me because security is very important. And actually, something that we didn't really touch on in our conversation with Garofalo, which was really enjoyable, and you all should listen to the end of it because it was, it was a fun interview to do, and there is some valuable advice in the book that Garofalo recently wrote. One of the things he talks about in his book, and again, like I said, we didn't get a chance to really elaborate on this with him, but if you all end up getting the book, you'll you'll find that he touches on these subjects. Security, especially for coin dealers, is very important. And if you look at back issues of Coin World from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, I mean, we continue to cover it to some extent today, but especially I, I noticed this in digging through some of these back issues for whether it's for the podcast or for an article I'm working on. If for whatever reason I'm back, you know, scrolling through old Coin Worlds, you do see a lot of notices about robberies and the occasional shooting and really unfortunate, you know, instances of theft. So this letter is talking about a very serious issue and collectors out there do be safe whenever you go to a coin show or just in general keep your collection safe putting them in a safety deposit box is obviously a good idea especially if you have really high value material be safe take all necessary precautions and you know i felt that this letter kind of highlighted an important safety concern uh, and also i just found the we'll take the necessary steps to protect our personal property and lives you know we're well armed i found that like i said i found that fairly evocative so something important to keep in mind, not to scare our listeners, but definitely keep in mind that, you know, the things we collect are, you know, are valuable and there are those who would, you know, potentially try to relieve us of them. So in the interest of safety, take, you know, the necessary precautions. The other letter is entitled Plans SBA Boycott, and it reads, quote, I've been thinking about the new Susan B. Anthony dollar, and I, for one, will not have any of them going into my coin collection. I will not buy any more proof nor mint sets until we get rid of that ugly dollar. There are a lot of old coins that put the Eisenhower and Anthony dollars to shame. I am only going to save the older ones that are pleasing to look at. In other words, I will not accept the Anthony dollar in change and will tell my friends to do the same. Maybe if enough people complain, Miss Liberty will be returned to us. And that was written by E.R. Powell of San Diego, California. So this stuff to me, I'm sure... 
uh, listeners to the podcast will tire of hearing of it, but part of my early collecting journey involves Susan B. Anthony dollars. My parents sat through a timeshare presentation in New Orleans in the 1980s, and uh, as part of the compensation that they were offered for sitting through that presentation, which I gather went from about a one-hour affair to a two-hour affair to a three-hour affair. As those a three-hour tour. <laughs> That's another reference my parents would appreciate. They, they were both big Gilligan's Island fans. So the Susan Manthe dollar is not very well thought of. I wrote a column months, months ago now about the 1981 uh, Susan B. Anthony dollar as sort of the last issue only included in mint sets. It was not popular. Um, there are all kinds of stories about how they were referred to. I'm not sure how widely this term was ever used. I know that, you know, the citation I've always seen for it was a California newspaper in the late seventies. People pejoratively, some people allegedly pejoratively referred to them as Carter quarters as a reference to the, you know, inflation in the late 1970s. Um, can't imagine what that's like. Um, and yeah, a little, a little topical humor. Um, but anyway, so, so the coins were not popular. They're widely considered unattractive, which I think that's subjective. It, I, it might not that my opinion matters, but it's, I think that the, the portrait of, uh, you know, the bust portrait, whatever of, of Anthony that appears on the obverse, it's not badly done. It's just the coin itself doesn't provide a very good canvas for it. And the reverse design, which has the Eagle laying the laurel on the moon. And then you can see the earth in the background. If you really, if you really look. Um, which also appeared on the Eisenhower dollar, as I'm sure our listeners are aware. That design doesn't look good in that size. Um, it doesn't look good in the sort of roughly quarter, sort of small dollar format size. It just it doesn't look good on the canvas provided by the Susan B. Anthony dollar. So it's a it's an unpopular coin, and it's just funny to see yet another collector at the time complaining about it because they were not very they were not warmly received when they were first issued in 1979. So yeah, that's uh, that's what jumped out at me on the letters page, Jeff. Awesome, awesome. And 1979, of course, uh, Mike Garofalo, uh, as I mentioned in, I th- if it didn't get edited out, you know, that was <laughs> the year I was born. So that's not the trivia question, though, this week. Last week, I asked you, because we had Lee Mordecai of the Flame Project on, I asked a question about ancient Roman coinage. So now it's time to see if you can answer it. Constantine the Great is famous for being the first Roman emperor to recognize Christianity. Whether he himself ever became a Christian is still subject to debate. But it is on a coin of his that we find the first Christian symbol on a Roman coin. It was not a cross. What was it? I asked the experts. There was no declared way of pronunciation. So I give you uh, some good leeway or latitude. Do you have any idea what, what I'm asking, what I'm talking about? So I believe the earliest Christian symbol um, that appeared on, on ancient coinage was it, did involve the Greek letters Chi and Rho that look sort of like a, a P with sort of an X around the bottom, um, which are the first two letters of Christ in Greek. A Christogram or uh, you that, are correct. That about right? You are correct. And I, I saw people say Cairo, Chiro, Cairo, like the town in Illinois, which is pronounced differently than Cairo in Egypt. Wait, wait, um, it is. Yes. In, in conversation, Cairo. not not that not that the town of Cairo, Illinois, frequently comes up in conversation, but whenever I have read <laughs> how often? <laughs> okay, not 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 that often. In fact, almost never. Probably never. But like when I read it, but like whenever I would see, because I've heard, I've seen the town Cairo, Illinois, reference in like numismatic articles about you know local 
you know, local obsolete notes or local script or tokens or something. For whatever reason, Cairo, Illinois. See, I'm being very careful about how I say because I actually didn't know this. I read it in my head, like if I'm reading to myself, the way it sounded in my head was Cairo. I was always saying Cairo, Illinois. That's yes. not pronounced well. And that's, right. you know, the mark of somebody who has read something and not heard it. I give somebody all the latitude with that. I myself have made uh, mistakes like that. And it's uh, the mark of somebody who's willing to, to learn and be educated and embrace a new concept or word without you know, the proper framework around it. Hey, you know, well, um, now I, I can more adequately or I can more accurately communicate with my friends from Illinois now. So yes. I, I, we, we all learned something today, Jeff. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, but that's, that's a cool question. So what, uh, well, what's the next question? What are we, uh, what are we going to be dealing with uh, next time? <laughs> so this is real easy. Um, not that that was, I mean, that I thought that was a challenging question, but you nailed it. So good for you. But, you know, Atmex is based in Oklahoma City. So I wanted to review or revisit the Oklahoma State Quarter from the, the State Quarter Program, not the America the Beautiful Program. So what year did this coin get released and what appears on the reverse design? The, the design elements uh, that represent the state of Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, this is, you have to delve back in the memory bank. This was, I won't say how many years ago that was because that would give away part of the answer. But it was, uh, you know, the program ended in 2009, right? 2008, rather. Well, it depends um, on if you count the D.C. and territories quarters. Well, so well, but Oklahoma is not D.C. or a territory. So, um, <laughs> no, no, no. Yes. But what I'm saying is that it depends. The end date for the program depends on if you count those those yes. quarters as part of the regular program. I think. But yeah, so 2009 is when the D.C. and Territories quarters came out. Not that that necessarily yes. helps our listeners to find the answer to this question, which I think I know. But anyway, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll cover that next time. In the meantime, while you're waiting to find out a little bit about that state quarter, please enjoy your interview with Mike Garofalo. We had a great time talking to him. Jeff and I both know him um, relatively well. And you know, we had a great time talking to him about his book and about his career in numismatics. So please enjoy. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Mike Garofalo, who is a familiar name in the industry, former retired now vice president and director of numismatics at Atmex, as well as doing consulting work today. Mike is the author of a recently published book, Secrets of the Rare Coin and Bullion Business from a Lifelong Trader. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Jeff, it's my pleasure. Uh, very happy that you and Chris invited me to be here to talk to your listeners. You know, you're somebody who has, uh, as long as I've known you, have been super kind, always willing to help anybody, provide any assistance as needed. And I think this book is really a manifestation of that maybe ethos. Before we get into the book, though, I'm interested in sharing with the listeners about Mike, the numismatist and the man. So, you know, we often start at the beginning of the subject's career. In your case, that was 1979. But your career before numismatics in some ways prepared you for the coin business. Tell us a little bit about your first job and how it relates to numismatics. And then we can talk more about how you entered the industry then. 
Sure. Actually, my first job out of school was, and I hesitate to bring this up a lot of times because it generally doesn't make a lot of people happy, is I was a tax examiner at the Internal Revenue Service. And if you really want to have a humbling experience, you join the IRS and call people and say that you're examining their taxes and you need additional information. They have a tendency to um, either blurt out all kinds of information that they shouldn't, or uh, they don't want to speak to you and they're terrified. But uh, the reality of it is the job was good for me for a variety of reasons. It made me realize that this is not going to be my life's calling. It made me realize, too, that there are tax ramifications and implications on virtually anything that you do. So you, you have to take that into consideration, which has really come to help me over the years. But going back a little bit, I started off like everybody did when I was a kid and a collector. And in the, this is in the 1960s. And, you know, we had the very good fortune then that when I would look through a lot of coins, I might find an Indian penny in there. Wheat cents were everywhere, but I might find an Indian penny somewhere or a Buffalo nickel or an occasional Liberty nickel. We had silver in, in our coins, you know, in 1964. And those were in circulation for, you know, three or four years afterwards till people started hoarding them. So I had that luxury. And across the street from where I lived was a little neighborhood convenience store at, that sold groceries. And my parents knew them really well. And every Friday, I would go there and pick up from the gentleman who owned the store a Chase and Sanborn coffee can full of coins, mm. and I had to roll it for him and bring it back to him the next day. What my benefit was, was I was able to take anything out of that can that I wanted as long as I replaced it quarter for quarter, dime for dime with another coin. He didn't care. He wanted to help me build my collection, but he also wanted to get his coins rolled so he could take them to the bank on Saturday. So it worked out great, and it gave me access to a lot more coins than I normally would have access to just being a, you know, a 10-year-old kid who had a, a paper route and an allowance, and that was my only source of income. Very good. I think, you know, many of us have stories of folks who sort of helped us along the way in that regard. My favorite is my grandma, uh, late grandma now, who at the time let me dig through her change and buy anything at equivalent face value. And I saw a three cent coin, copper nickel, uh, not the silver version. And mm -hmm. I thought it was a dime because it's that size. So I got it for a dime, but you know. <laughs> In, in any event, uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's fun that there's many we can look back at these moments that really helped intrigue us and interest us. So how did that passion develop? You know, you're at the IRS, which spells theirs, theirs, mm -hmm. the IRS. Um, and, um, you know, how did you develop that? And then what led you to go into numismatics full time? My older brother, uh, when he was alive, um, was actually, he kind of led the way for me to get into the coin business. 
and he introduced me to a lot of his connections. Being seven years older, when I was a 10-year-old, he was 17 and starting to go to coin shows and starting to set up at local shows. I remember going to the 1960 NINA convention, uh, New England Numismatic Association, and I was only seven years old, you know, walking around there and looking at all of the stuff. It, It was kind of exciting. So I always kind of had that in my blood a bit. That was the year, 1979, that I got married. And uh, the woman I I married um, was somebody who I met at work. We both worked for Bank of Boston in the tax department. And we used to do tax returns for very wealthy individuals. And when we were visiting my parents' house one day before we got married, I was down in the basement and I happened to find my old coin collection that I had put down once I got a, a little bit older. And I started looking at it again and said, oh, this is this is pretty cool. I've, I've got coins. I remember this coin. I remember that coin. I grabbed the coins and took them with me. And I said to my soon-to-be wife, you know, it might be fun to take these coins to a uh, coin show and see what they're worth and maybe buy and sell a few things. And like she has done for the last 42 years, she put up with me and and uh, with what some people would consider foolishness. Um, but it turned out that um, over the next couple of years, I did a few coin shows and thought, you know, I'm actually making money at this. I wonder if I could do this on a full-time basis because as much as I love taxes and love preparing tax returns for really wealthy people, buying and selling coins is kind of fun. It's something I've always enjoyed doing. And one thing led to another and you have a couple of good shows. Uh, you have to remember too, 1979 was yeah. a great <laughs> time to to come into the coin business. The Hunt Brothers were trying to corner the silver market and they pushed silver up from $3 an ounce up to $50 an ounce in, in January of 1980. And gold went right along with it. Gold topped out at $850, having been in the $250 to $300 range for for quite some time. So it was an exciting time to to be buying and selling coins. And I, I tell you, it just, it really spoke to me. It spoke to what I enjoy doing. It wasn't work. It was fun. It was fun going to a show. It was fun buying coins and selling them and talking to people and sharing what little uh, I knew about them. And the great thing about the the business has been it's been a lifelong passion, but it's also been a, um, a lifelong study. You can't know everything in the coin and bullion business. Absolutely impossible. Way too broad. So the thing that I always tried to do was I tried to know, I know a little bit about ancient coins. I know a little bit about currency. I know a little bit about U.S. type coins and gold and commemoratives. And after a while, you're more well-rounded. You understand Things. So when uh, somebody comes to you with a collection, an inheritance or something that they have, you can now help them. You can give them a little bit of information that's really good and valid. And you know the dealers who specialize in these areas and you can help point them in the right direction. So 
that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed the most. And that was really kind of the catalyst for writing this book was at Atmex, where I worked for 12 years. One thing that I did that I really enjoyed was I trained people there. You know, Atmex is a big company, 250 people or so. And, uh, but there's only a couple of dozen people who there who are really numismatists. You have marketing pros and IT folks and accountants and, you know, and all kinds of people to support that website and the numismatic folks who are behind it feeding coins into that. One of the things I had the pleasure of doing, and actually, even since my retirement in 2019, I've still done, has been to go and to train those folks. Over the last two years, my training at Mex folks has been via Zoom uh, because of COVID. But prior to then, and, and when I was there, um, I trained them in person. And it's great when you see the light bulb go off, somebody is listening to you and you're giving them examples of how to grade coins. It's really great when you see that light bulb go off and like, oh yeah, this makes sense now. Oh, so if the tip of the horn on the buffalo nickel is showing it's this grade, you can really see when people start to get it. And for me, that's that's kind of the fun part about about doing it is, is really is training people and helping them know what you know and learning more every day too. To me, that's what I never want to stop doing is, you know, just learning more about the coin business. It's nice to actually have the time to read some of the 300 volumes in my numismatic library, rather than just using them for quick reference. Now that I'm retired, I have that luxury. So it's been fun doing that. I have to, as an aside, (laughs) make the observation for the listeners. I am outnumbered here because both you and Chris hail from uh, the Boston area. So <laughs> you are uh, Boston boys through and through, I believe, although, you know, you've the last 12, 15 years uh, have been in Oklahoma out in the plains. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> actually, Jeff, it's funny. Uh, it's funny you say that. And and Mike, you, you said something there that, uh, that really kind of um, caught my ear or that my ears perked up when I heard. My dad actually worked for Bank of Boston as well. Um, really? I'm not Isn't sure. Isn't that funny? I'm not sure exactly the start and end dates of his employment there, but I know that he was there in the 1990s. So probably, I think, judging by the range of years you provided, not during your, I don't know that your 10 years would have overlapped, but yeah, my, my dad worked there. So are you saying that I'm older than your father? Is that what you're trying, trying not, to not not by much actually? Tell me, Chris. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, you know, t- tempting as the tempting as that is, I know. Um, no, but actually, no, you two are roughly the same age, actually. Uh, he was a petroleum geologist. Uh, he worked for um, a couple of oil companies uh, before he got into banking. So he, he made the switch over to banking uh, later in his career. So you two probably wouldn't have overlapped. But anyway, it's uh, it, that. But that's just a funny little aside. Um, I, I, I thought it would, would have been when I started saying about how coins were wicked awesome that you picked up <laughs> on it that I was originally from New England. Wicked awesome. Yes. Um, <laughs> hey, yeah, no. you, you could have said that you went to the corner donkeys and rooted through the draw. Well, that's the draw, true. The, the corner. No, no, Jeff, if you're going to go through the draw. It's the corner donkeys. That's the one. <laughs> Kana. <Okay. laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Anyway. <laughs> um, let's, but, let's get yeah, back to the, but, to yeah. the coins, though. Well, no, but he, hearing uh, hearing your answer to that that previous question, like you know, clearly you you value your role as sort of a numismatic educator of sorts. You know, the, the the passion that you articulate for you know seeing your students, so to speak, your customers or other collectors uh, succeed is obviously you know that's that's admirable. That's something we try to do here uh, to some extent. 
And when Jeff and I started the podcast, we talked a lot about how much information and how many different concepts collectors, dealers, and really anyone with numismatic experience kind of integrates into their hobby and or their business dealings almost unconsciously. It seems like, you know, really um, talented numismatists or, or skilled or experienced dealers and collectors, you know, hearing people talk, it's almost like they're speaking another language. And of course, any field has a specialized vocabulary, a shorthand for central concepts. And something I appreciated about your book is that it clearly explains the vocabulary and and lays out the concepts necessary for sort of knowledgeable collecting. And it puts it into language that I think most people can connect with, where I think people might be intimidated to some extent by a lot of the jargon that gets used and a lot of the shorthand for, for different things that, you know, it's very intuitive to people who understand it, but it might not be intuitive to an outside observer. Which concepts did you find most intuitive were the easiest to explain and which were the most difficult? Well, it, it, that's a great question. Um, grading of course is a difficult concept to uh, explain to anybody because uh, you know, uh, when I was um, a, a kid and starting off on this, I had the, the um, Dunn and Brown photo grade book. And the original version of that started off as line drawings. And so it's kind of hard to understand the concept of grading when you're looking at a line drawing or something as opposed to a photograph, where it's a little easier to see the wear or to see the lack of details that you normally wouldn't see, you know, in a drawing anyway. That's uh, one of the hardest concepts to to understand. You know, all of this information comes at a cost, and the cost is what's good information and what isn't. And what I mean by that is I can't tell you how many emails, text messages, etc. I get online all the time from people who stumbled across either the book or I have a uh, Ask the Dealer little website that um, I've had out there for some time. And they all kind of start off with, you know, uh, I'm watching this YouTube video about how half of the coins in my pocket are worth thousands and thousands of dollars because of this mint error that they have. And see, sometimes having too much information is confusing for people who start off. So what I try to do and what I tried to do in the book was to give you a little bit of a roadmap. If you're not an experienced collector or you're a novice dealer, I try to give you a little roadmap to say, look, if you follow this, you have people and institutions and books and things that will kind of help you along. And you can kind of block out the noise and the static that's around you because you, you're really hit with so much. In a way, when I learned, it was a little bit easier. You know, back in the day when I was a kid, dealers would buy coins based on the blue book and sell them based on the red book. Man, that was pretty simple. You knew what something would cost you you knew what something was was actually worth and and life was good and then as the uh, Sheldon scale gained in in popularity well it made things a lot better but it made things a lot harder too I was very fortunate in that my span of of collecting started in the 60s 
and brought me right into my dealing in the late 70s. And during that period, you didn't have PCGS and NGC to teach you how to grade. You had to know how to grade coins. The first grading and the first money I ever spent as a collector or as a dealer was sending coins to ANAX to have them take a black and white photograph and send the photographs and the coins back to me. And so it was helpful in that regard. It was uh, made the, certainly made the coins more saleable, but it's, it was awfully hard to match up an untoned silvery colored Morgan without any marks on it or uh, without any discernible marks on it from a black and white photograph. So it was limited in in that respect. Uh, Anax was good with the idea that they had authenticating the coins, making sure that they're genuine, making sure that there's no problems with them, that they haven't been doctored in any way. But the photograph didn't really take the place of what was to come in the future. And, you know, PCGS and NGC had the great idea to let's encapsulate the coins and everybody kind of followed suit. But, you know, NCI and, you know, the whole alphabet soup of of grading companies that were out there at the time made it a little more confusing. But you, you knew that with the support of dealers and collectors that PCGS and NGC would be the, the ones that would really survive and it would really help. I think that for collectors and for n- novice dealers today, looking at the coins that are already graded are, you know, is a great way to learn how to grade coins accurately. But again, too, you know, they're graded, even though they're graded by consensus, they're graded by human beings. So there's always some measure of uncertainty as to the um, the actual grade of something. So many people have learned grading by looking at coins that are graded. And that's one thing I always encourage people is you want to improve your grading skills, look at the coins that PCGS grades, look at the coins that NGC grades, see how do those standards meet the standards that you see in the ANA grading guide or in in um, Coin World's Making the Grade. I'll, I'll give Coin World a, a little plug here. That was a, a book that I used religiously at Apex when I was training people because it made grading easy. It made it difficult and arcane subject matter understandable for people who were essentially lay people who didn't really know how to grade coins. So there's a lot of great things out there right now that collectors can use and dealers can use. You've just got to kind of get through the clutter in order to be able to find them. And that's part of what I try to do in the book is point you in the right direction on what are good references and which what you should really focus on and which are the things that you might want to focus on later after you already have that uh, that good basis of understanding. Working your way through the clutter that you described, sort of this this kind of clutter of vocabulary, this sort of conceptual clutter. I imagine that not only did you have to try to, in terms of writing the book, not only did you have to think about how to express it to a broad audience so that people would under, people even sort of the uninitiated would be able to understand it, but I imagine that you also had to structure it in such a way, not only to communicate clearly, but to communicate concisely. So I'm curious about how you structured the book and which concepts struck you as the most important and how you ordered them. Like you, for example, you use throughout the book, you know, examples of collectible coins that somebody might encounter. An 1881 CC Morgan dollar, I remember being one of the, the coins used as an example, as sort of framing devices. And you sort of explain the concepts using 
real world examples. Could you explain a little bit about that structure? Did you find that using, you know, a specific coin made it easier to kind of track through all of the different sort of organizations and all the different concepts important to the hobby? That's a great point, Chris. Yeah, that was my intention all along. I mean, I tried to put the book together in a way so that if you were a novice to the coin business, you would uh, be able to take this book and kind of use it as a roadmap. I mean, the first chapter is really all about knowing what you have, the item that you have in front of you. Is it bullion? Is it semi-numismatic, which is a, a nice way of saying it's collectible bullion? Or is it numismatic? Is it really a rare coin? And once you understand what you have, then you can go about learning how to grade it and also learning how to price it. So I was trying to, to put together a logical schematic, if you will, to follow so that people who uh, weren't as yet knowledgeable on it could take the book and say, okay, let me read this and uh, try to make it an easy read. I've, I've had a couple of people tell me they read it in, in an evening and it's 170 pages. And I'm thinking, man, they, they must've had that Evelyn Wood speed reading course. <laughs> uh, it, it certainly took me longer to, uh, to read it. And, and I wrote it, I had a little bit of a leg up on it, but, but I wanted to have the reader understand that, uh, you know, let's take some of the mystery and knowledge out of this. Focus on these things and the rest of it will come to you as you need it to. And that's really, you know, was my thought in the whole process was let's give you a roadmap, assume that you have limited knowledge in this. And, but I also tried to put enough information in there. So if you were a reasonably seasoned collector, you might not know what the average premiums would be for a dealer on a, a scarce item versus a rare item. You know, it, it's hard to blend everything in. It's hard to encapsulate what you've learned over the last four decades into a book, no matter how long it is. But I tried to pick the most salient ones. And I had a lot of great help on that. You know, my wife has been uh, with me as long as I've been in the, the coin business, 42 years. And she was a tremendous help to me in proofreading the book for me because she's not a numismatist and she's not a collector, but she's been exposed to it for a long time. So she knows much more than the average person does about the topic, but she's still a lay person. And if she could read the chapter and understand the concepts I was trying to get across, I thought, well, I'm making progress that way. And believe me, there were plenty of times when she read it and said, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. And it would get me to focus a little more clearly on exactly what the right points were. What were the things that I was trying to, to really point out here most importantly? And, you know, honestly, that's something, as you can tell by our conversation here, it's easy to get me talking about coins and the coin business and aspects of it. It's hard when you're trying to focus on that and, and put those uh, points down on paper. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, though. There's a lot of clutter and noise out there that, that I tried to 
keep out of the book, but I'm sure some of it's uh, swept in. And that's kind of one of the, the reasons why the folks at, at CDN are doing an online version of the book as well. Because as we find things that people come to me and say, gee, you know, you, I wish you had expanded a little more on this topic or where was this? I, we can continue to make it better and better. And that's the idea is to, you know, um, not have the perfect work, but have something that continually be, you know, in, improved upon. And, you know, my work isn't the groundbreaking first work on this. A, a lot of dealers in the past have written their perceptions of the coin business. But what I tried to do was just take away some of that noise and some of the, the mystery about things and say, hey, look, this is the way that things are. The first idea I had was, you know, uh, lots of collectors over the years have come up to me, whether I was working for myself or for another company or for Atmex, and would be embarrassed to ask a question. And the thing that they don't realize is we dealers are there for them. Without them, it's a wholesale deal and it's, you know, you don't have to explain anything. But I tried to improve the communication between collectors and dealers because it's critical. The communication is everything. And dealers can certainly do a, a better job of listening and communicating to collectors, just as collectors can do a better job as well, too. So I kind of looked at some of my experiences over the years and incorporated them into the book so that, you know, you'd know what, what the business is like. It's not all glamour and fun, but damn, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Well, I'm glad you mentioned a couple of the things you did just here. Chris can attest to this, that I highlighted these as potential talking points. But first, I want to know, who is this book targeted to or who did you write it for? Because you did seem to straddle that line between beginner and dealer. I mean, I, I got a sense that it was you were writing to a new dealer, but you were also writing to a new collector. And I'm not sure, was there one goal or, or, or was that the goal or who won out in the end? You know, who was better served? That's a good question. My intention was to give uh, put together a book that would be of value to somebody starting off. You you either are just starting to uh, collect. It's a hobby that you know you know something about, but you you don't really know what your place in the in the hobby quite is just yet. So that was really the focus was for collectors and investors to have them understand what dealers are doing how we communicate things, how sometimes we intend to communicate things, but we don't do a great job of it. The idea was to really focus on helping the average collector learn something more about how dealers perceive something. And then at the very end, chapter 11 or 12, whatever it is, I put in a chapter for novice dealers because there's some basic information that you know, guys who are just coming up, and I say guys, I mean, you know, w women too. This is a male-dominated industry and hobby, but that gives women some advantages that men don't have in the ability to stand out for their knowledge and, and for their experience and, and what they do. So that was one thing that at, at Atmex in particular, I always tried to encourage was that the women who had an interest in learning more about it, you wanted to, to help them and, and to train them. But I wanted there to be something in the book for a dealer starting off, and maybe I can help them not make some of the mistakes that I made or I saw happen to other people. 
and to get everybody off on the right foot. I mentioned earlier that one of the things that I still do for Atmex and I've done for other companies too is I love to train people, particularly folks who don't know the difference between a, a bullion item and a semi-numi item, or they don't know much about currency, or they don't know what exonomia even is, and educate them on these terms that we all take for granted and know, because it's amazing to see the spark. Everybody has, uh, that I found, everybody has some coins that they put away or their family put away that the reason they put them away is, gee, I haven't seen this before. It seems unusual. Or there's something about this that, that I like, but they can't really put their finger on it. Everybody has those experiences. So I think the book is is really, you know, primarily of help to people who want to enjoy the hobby more for the collectors to do it. But I did purposely put a chapter in at the end of the book for dealers so that they would, would get something out of it. Now, a guy who's been in the industry as long as I have or half the time that I've been in the industry, there's not much that I can really educate and help them on. But maybe I can make them a little bit more aware of what collectors have said to me over the years as issues or how do they get a better relationship with the dealer. And that's kind of why I didn't just use, in particular, in the last couple of chapters, my own thoughts on this. I, I asked you know, five uh, well-known dealer friends of mine about their experiences and what type of advice would they give to collectors? What type of advice would they give to dealers? Because as often as I think, gee, I, I, I've got some great ideas here. I don't know everything. I certainly, I don't proclaim to, to know everything. And a lot of the ideas that are in the book are things that people have told me and I've learned fr from them over the years. And then there are, you know, five dealers who I quoted, who I respect, who I've done business with, who collectively, you know, they have 200 years of experience in it. I really wanted the, the book to be dealers talking to collectors and collectors talking to dealers to have this understanding a little better. And, and maybe we can enjoy the all enjoy the hobby even more than, than we do now. You talk to most dealers and the reason that they do it is they love it. They enjoy it. It's fun to do. And, and maybe they're sick of, of the fourth day at a coin show somewhere and they're, they're itching to get home, but deep down inside, they still love that. And when the collector comes by, most dealers still want to talk to them, uh, find out how they can help them, find out what questions they have about it. I've been very fortunate to be able to do this for my life's work and, and actually be able to make a living at it. It's, it, it's, it's been fun. If I had to do it over again, I'd, I'd have just jumped into the business a little earlier than I did. But when it comes to the coin business, it's hard to have any regrets on something that you love to do. Yeah. One of the things I actually learned uh, in reading this and I appreciated was the the breakdown on the theoretical margins that a dealer mm -hmm. would have uh, based on the product line and and metal and all that although it, it seems that you know the online sales venues you know the fact that so much business is now transacted online it sort of pushes a, a race to the bottom uh, price wise and you touched on that a little bit with you know you go to eBay and you can find the price here and there and this and that and the other so it was interesting to see just to learn from the the dealer side the margins because as a collector then I know oh okay you know this is 
I mean, I understand the dealers are an important part of the ecosystem. Uh, you know, you can't have collectors without dealers and you can't have dealers without collectors. But that was really helpful just to understand, okay, you know, th- this is how the business side of it works. But, you know, a lot of the recommendations and the information are, you know, it's old chestnuts, old standards, buy the book before the coin, buy the mm-hmm. best you can afford. These have been said again and again, uh, you know, as long as I've been paying attention at a serious level, I say, since I joined Coin World 17, 18 years ago. And I know they've been said for years before then, even before you got involved. Are people just not listening to this advice? I mean, what's at some point you go, okay, I keep hearing this. It must really be important. Not to say that it's obvious, but it seems like, are just people not paying attention? Why Why do we have to... Um, I don't hammer that home, maybe. (laughs) Well, to be successful at something or to be successful at most things, uh, I would say, um, you know, Jeff, you have to have a good basis for it, a a basis of understanding about the items themselves. And, And you're right. There are some basic tenets. I mean, Dave Bowers was saying a long time ago, buy the book before the coin. And, and I'm just kind of parroting that along because it is sage advice in many respects. Now that the difference is too today, you know, you talk a little bit about the, the race to the bottom. Well, the competition is very fierce, because of technology, because everybody can be on either on eBay or on the web. But in a way, that's good because what it does is it tends to wash out the people who are a little bit not, uh, let me phrase it this way, uh, not the most scrupulous people in the world to deal with. You know, grading services came along and knocked out, for the most part, the dealers who were uh, unscrupulous and calling AU coins 63s because collectors couldn't tell the difference between them. Anybody who does any research into the industry at all knows that if you're spending considerable money on rare coins and you don't know how to grade, then you should have them graded uh, by an independent third party. And that PCGS and NGC and ANACs and you know uh, one or two others are reliable companies, but there's a whole mishmash, as I said before, an alphabet soup of companies that grade that aren't reliable. So, you know, drumming that information into people's heads is a good thing. And remember, too, you know, some of the dealers who were saying these things when I was coming up in the industry are now long gone. But the basic tenet it still stands true that there are certain things that that you should do and buying the best you can afford is you know is a great thing one of the the common themes i had in this book was to buy what you like because so many people who were starting off would come to me and say what should i be collecting and that I don't have an answer for that other than to say, what do you like? What do you enjoy looking at? You know, if you like putting together collections of coins where you can compare all of those coins equally, then go for a series. Go for a series of Morgan dollars or 
a large sense or, you know, um, XF Indian sense. If you want variety in your collection, uh, put together a, a 50 piece set of, of classic commemoratives because you've got some of the greatest designers in, in, you know, in our history designing these coins and all of the designs are different, you know, but I can't tell you what you should be collecting. I can tell you what's popular in the market. I can tell you what's overpriced in my personal opinion in the market. I can tell you what I think is undervalued, but I can't tell you what you like. You have to know that. So you have to understand too, that the audience, you and I have been part of the audience for you almost two decades, me for five decades. We have a tendency to know what we like, but every day new people come into the marketplace because they have an interest. They now have the funds to do this stuff. They inherited something, whatever their rationale is for doing it, or they were just exposed to it when they hadn't been before. Then you want to give them the basic information. You want to tell them the basic things that are true to buy the book, to educate yourself. And buy the book doesn't mean to buy the book anymore, unless, of course, it's my book, uh, of course. Uh, sorry, I had to get that plug in. But, you know, what it means. Shameless. Is, <laughs> it was shameless self promotion. But what it means is educate yourself. It's really when we say buy the book, it's go online, talk to people, go to coin shows, talk. Talk to people, join a, a coin club, uh, talk to people who have more experience than you. They'll help you. Uh, you don't have to buy the book to learn how to grade. You can go to a PCGS's website, go to NGC's website, but you can buy, as I mentioned, uh, making the grade. You can buy, you know, photo grade. You can do all of these things to keep educating yourself to learn more. It's a hobby. Like I said, you know, as a dealer, it's been more than 40 years for me. As a dealer and collector, it's been 60 years roughly for me. And I still learn new things every single day because I'm applying myself to learn this stuff now. So there are basic tenets that people do need to know. And uh, those things don't really change, nor will they, they ever change. But the medium of how you get that information will change. Now, it's not all just reading books. It's now looking online. And another thing, too, is if you live in a part of the country where you don't have the easiest transportation uh, methods out, there aren't a lot of flights to major cities etc. You know, then going to coin shows, which used to be a, a big production, now you have the luxury of being able to see thousands and thousands and thousands of coins in very large, digitally clear formats at home on your computer. So it's really changed and the audience is broader right now. You know, somebody once asked me, you've been around for a long time. I go to a coin show and everybody I see at the coin show is an old geezer like you are. And that's the dealers and the people walking around and, and collecting. Is this hobby dying? And I give it an emphatic, no, it's not. And the reason I say that is, you know, when I went to Atmex, the thing that I found was here's an online company that's grown to tremendous proportions online. And their clientele is much younger 
than the average person you'd see at a coin show. A couple of generations younger, they want information, they want it in a certain way, they want it to be clear and concise, and that's why every dealer worth their salt has a presence online. And now take it, you know, even add social media into the whole mix where, you know, everybody is selling on on Facebook, on on Instagram, you name it. I mean, I'm surprised that, you know, uh, there aren't people and maybe maybe there will be every date that you have with somebody on Tinder, you get a silver eagle or something. You know, I don't, I don't know what's next, but I do know that. Thank, go- thank goodness I can buy silver eagles <laughs> from <laughs> Atmex <laughs> if my collection were... Uh- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh no, no, no. But but the point is though that there's so the technology is changing and it's becoming more available to everybody. You know, my first computer was a Commodore 64, meaning it transferred 64 bits of information across a line. There were no images, but I could do trading on CoinNet back in the early 1980s with dealers I hadn't met. And um, just simply by putting a message out there and having them respond back to my message. And, you know, and today it's so totally different. You you know, the technology is so much better. It's so much easier for everybody. And it's available to more people as well, too. So the market keeps changing. It's growing and expanding. And that point was really drummed, you know, into my head was that the industry is not dying. The hobby is not dying. It's got good health right now. And it's growing by leaps and bounds. And a lot of times people... People will come and they'll buy a little silver or gold because they want to hedge against inflation or whatever their motivation is. And next thing you know, they're bitten because they're collecting now that that item that's really a bullion item. But, hey, it's got a different date on it. Well, let me see if I can get all of the dates that they had. And next thing you know, they're reading the Red Book or uh, they have a subscription to Coin World, or they're looking in the gray sheet for a price on something. I mean, you know, the bug bites them. They like acquiring the precious metal. And for a lot of them, it turns into a hobby that they didn't know they had an interest in. Yeah. I've long said that bullion is the gateway drug. So it is. Uh, it, it, and, and I saw that clearly, you know, uh, working for Atmax that, uh, you know, we didn't have to sell people on the rare coin aspects of things. A lot of them migrated on their own to it simply because bullion, you're right, was the gateway drug. It's, it's easy to understand. Yes, I know I need to have a little bit of gold and silver in case the stock market goes down and my 401k drops in value and what do I have that's a hedge? Well, you know, here's something that is uncorrelated to the stock and bond markets. And that's a good thing. You know, it, it, go back to the basic investment tenant. Diversification is the key to safety. Well, you know, the same thing is true in, in all investments and buying coins and precious metals. You know, again, uh, I'm not encouraging people to buy them as an investment. The theme that's in my book that I've always said for, for decades is buy what you like, whether that's coins or bullion or whatever buy what interests you and what you like you'll always enjoy owning it that's the the best easiest advice i could give anybody today uh because they will enjoy owning something that they that they take enjoyment out of looking at 
You've been given quite a bit of advice since you retired from Atmex in 2019. I think you mentioned that earlier. You've remained active in numismatics, uh, still dealing to an extent, and you started a consulting business. Could you tell us a little bit about that consulting business and and how it's gone over the last couple of years? Honestly, Chris, it was an unintended consequence. I always thought that social media and the internet were good things for all of their faults. I thought that they were great things. And the more you could adapt and adopt them to your lifestyle, your business, the better off you would be. It certainly makes things easier. You know, I I, I used to have a, a ledger book where I would write down a coin that I owned, what I paid for it, uh, all of this information. And that became you know, um, something online. And the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is that I adopted some technology early. I went on LinkedIn and built a profile there. And I interacted with people that I would meet. I had the great fortune of being able to travel to China and meet dealers there and uh, meet with the Great Wall Investment Company and meet with the Shanghai Mint and, and go to Europe to the Berlin um, a World's Money Fair and meet dealers from all over Europe. And, and I've had really a lot of advantages, but I would leverage these by connecting with them after I met them, connect with them afterwards online, send them an email, thank them for, for meeting. So I built uh, a Rolodex, if you will, and talk about there's an old fashioned word that mm-hmm. you know 90% of the people have no idea what a Rolodex even is. But it, it's just a way of saying you built your contact list. And it's really helped me because since I retired from, from MX in 2019, I can't tell you the number of dealers and mints and designers who have come to me and said, hey, I noticed that you are friendly with people here, or I see in your background that you worked at this particular place. Um, I'd like to have my products displayed to them so that they can see uh, who I am. I'd like to get to know them. And over the last three years, this uh, cottage business has sprung up in my own office here of people coming to me and talking to me about their business and can I help them grow their business? Can I help them not make the mistakes that I've made and I've seen others make and have worked with um, who have made mistakes and and introduce people? Just before we we started speaking this morning, I had a conversation with, with a mint in Europe who doesn't have currently a North American presence. And they wanted to retain me to help them meet with the right companies in the U.S. who could help sell their products to the audience in, in the U.S. and in Canada and in Mexico. And it's funny, there we are in a, a relatively small universe of people in the coin and bullion businesses. And what's happened to me is people have asked me to help them to share what I know, to introduce them to each other and to make these connections so that everybody can do more business. And I try to check out the people who I'm dealing with as well as I can. And that's a a great thing about the, the internet today is that all of the good things that you've ever done are out there. And so are all of the bad things that you've ever done. So it's nice to be able to check people out and introduce a good company 
company to a good coin designer, to introduce a good coin designer to a good mint, et cetera, and help them grow and make this business stronger and better. And the great thing is, too, that, you know, having a little part in this where I may bring to a retailer, uh, a coin designer, and he'll design some coins for them. To me, I get great pleasure out of being that catalyst, the person who brought the talented person together to the talented marketers, and now they have a successful product out there. So it's it's been amazing to me how this business has, has grown by, by leaps and bounds. In fact, my, my wife commented that she sees less of me even though I'm working uh, here locally, she sees less of me now than she did uh, when I was working full time and traveling all around the world for Atmax. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good reason why we've stayed uh, married together and are so happy for such a long time uh, <laughs> is that she 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 doesn't see as much of me as as I would like to see of, of her. But yeah, all kidding aside, um, it, it's really amazing to me how the business has done. And the lesson in that for people who are listening and paying attention and wanting that is build up your social presence. Talk about things. Don't be afraid to comment when you see something, a great design that somebody just made, a successful product that somebody launched. Don't be afraid to comment on it and share your uh, opinions on things because, you know, it's important and, and that's how you, you get noticed. So really quickly, but before we let you go, um, in our conversation before the podcast, uh, you and I got to talking and you mentioned, um, obviously, in our conversation, you mentioned that there are a lot of your clients you can't, you obviously can't speak about to maintain confidentiality. But you told me about a really interesting project you're working on relating to the Olympics in 2028. Could you talk about that? Yes, that I'm uh, able to talk about is the United States uh, Olympic and Paralympic properties. They are the marketing arm of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And in the year 2028, six years from now, uh, the Olympics will be back in Los Angeles. Those of you who collect modern commemorative coins will know that in 1984, the Olympics were held in Los Angeles and a couple of uh, modern commemoratives were issued to uh, mark that event. Well, right now, the Olympics for 2028, even though we're six years out, the folks are uh, actually crafting the legislation and their lobbyists are starting to drum up bipartisan support for it. Uh, the, the money that, uh, is, you know, on all commemorative coins, there's a surcharge. And uh, on the commemorative coins, the surcharge generally goes to um, some organization that's trying to do something uh, that uh, is worthy of commemoration. In this instance, the coins, the Olympic coins that will be sold, that'll be issued by the um, United States Mint, will go to supporting our athletes there and supporting the taxpayers of Los Angeles who will be um, footing the, um, uh, the bill, if you will, uh, for the Olympics uh, that will be held there. So my role has been to help them look at the legislation. Uh, what I did is I did a study of 
uh, prior uh, legislative efforts, what was in the laws back in 1984 and, and in subsequent Olympic coin issues and see what was needed there and the direction that they wanted to go in. I, w- I gave them advice as to what I would want to see in those in that piece of legislation, and then they'll take it and give it to their lobbyists who will try to drum up enough support so that it passes both houses of Congress, and hopefully the president will sign it into law, and that these coins will be struck in 2027 and 2028, or just in 2028, depending on what the bill actually authorizes. So I tried to help them get the right components into the legislation, but also have introduced them to a number of companies that will be instrumental in the disbursement of those coins, because this is not something that the um, U.S. Olympic Committee is good at doing. They're great at marketing and being able to leverage their logos and their athletes, et cetera, for for different things to support them. But uh, knowing the coin business, um, that's why they hired me to help them understand the ramifications of it. And from a collector and dealer's point of view, what we would like to see, you know, on those issues, and hopefully that will come to uh, uh, to fruition. I have to throw some unsolicited uh, advice here or request, having covered multiple Olympic coinage programs from other countries, mm-hmm. uh, having seen what the Royal Canadian Mint did for the 2010 Vancouver Games, what London did for 2012, uh, circulating commemorative coins have been a great part of those uh, and, and some other efforts. Japan more recently did a hundred yen, a series of a hundred yen coins. I really hope the U.S. can can do something like that. And that's traditionally not been part of the um, the efforts. You know, you look back at mm-hmm. the 1984 games, but uh, folks at the Royal Mint will tell you that there were significant residual benefits to their series of 29 circulating 50 pence coins in drawing collectors in and and graduating them up the ladder to other other products. So, you know, you didn't ask. I don't care. I got to say it because somebody's got to say it, at least in the case of, you know, there's all these commemorative coin programs in the U.S. circulating quarters now for women. We've done the States and this and that. Why not something like this that gives people something to search for in their pocket change? And, uh, you know, but again, like I say, you didn't ask, but I had to say it. And at least it's on record. (laughs) uh, All all I can say to to you uh, about this, Jeff, is that noted and it's uh, I can say that it's been discussed whether that actually becomes part of the legislation or there's separate legislation for that. I can tell you that they have taken note of, of that. Now, what, what comes of it is another story entirely. But I can tell you that sure. your point is very well taken because it is true. You know, I remember when the Bicentennial Quarters came out, which was a, a huge monumental event. And people were really, you know, enthralled with them and they could get them in, in circulation. And it did bring people into the hobby 
who looked at them and said, my, my God, you know, the, this is really kind of cool. What a great design, totally different from what's normally been out there. So it is something that has been considered. What happens to it is, is uh, that's be above my pay grade, but it is something that, <laughs> that I can tell you, you know, is and has been under consideration. And I will also say too, that the reason that they asked me to help them too was my presence out on social media, having talked about designers that I work with and having talked about contacts with various world mints and with, with lots of, um, of coin companies. So b building your, your, your profile, your presence, whether you're a dealer, collector, investor is, is never a bad thing. It's generally a, a good thing because it helps people know and understand you and, and what motivates you. We're going to leave that as the last word and say, uh, stay tuned as the, the time progresses. Uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to talk about something concrete in the coming weeks and months and years. But we do thank you so much for taking, gosh, like an hour of time today to share your insights, talk about the book. Again, Secrets of the Rare Coin and Bullion Business from a Lifelong Trader, Michael Garofalo. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Jeff and Chris, thank you both for inviting me. Um, it's fun. Uh, I did give you the warning that, you know, if you get me uh, started talking about the hobby and profession that I love, uh, uh, you may regret it. But uh, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. I hope your listeners will, will enjoy it as well. And thanks to Coin World for, for sponsoring this. You, you guys have, have really put on uh, with Larry a great series of podcasts, and uh, I've enjoyed listening to them. So thanks for inviting me here and uh, have a great day. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun, and I know our listeners will enjoy it. And that was our interview with Mike Garofalo, author of Secrets of the Rare Coin and Bullion Business from a Lifelong Trader. You know, I made the comment in the interview that some of this was rather elementary level, so to speak, but it's always good to have a reminder of some of these concepts. There were things that uh, I learned in reading the book, and I think, uh, I certainly hope that you, the listener, learned something from our discussion with him this time. So if you did learn something, if you've learned something from any of our previous episodes, if you've enjoyed our content, please remember to keep listening every week and remember to subscribe. It's the best way to support the show. And uh, we thank CoinRule Plus for allowing us to be here. We thank you for being here with us. Until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the CoinWorld Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time. CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.